Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On today's episode, we are speaking to Sean Fisher. Many of you will know that Sean has had an incredible career across a number of areas of the insurance industry, and she is currently the CEO at the Chartered Institute of Insurance. Sean has held senior roles in Lloyd Syndicates, a European and UK insurance company, a startup and market-leading MGA, as well as a major international broker and US corporation. Sean is passionate about equality and is the founding member of Insuring Women's Futures Initiative, as well as holding several board directorships in businesses and associations across the industry. Welcome, Sean. Good afternoon, Sean. Thank you ever so much for joining us today. Delighted. Thank you very much for the invitation. Your career history is incredible, and there'll be very few people listening today that don't know who Sean Fisher is, but it would be great if you could give us an overview of your career. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. I'm sure there's plenty of people that uh, haven't heard of me because there's always new people joining the uh, the sector at different times. But um, the way I, I sort of describe my career, I suppose, is that I've almost had five different careers in a funny way. And that they, they just by coincidence, they seem to follow the decades. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 50s now. And, and uh, if you like, this is this is my fifth career. But I, I sort of say, you know, in my sort of 20s, I had a fairly conventional, technical, you know, learning my trade, as, as I put it. And that's that was actually as a broker. Uh, interestingly, I, I first uh, was a graduate trainee at, at what's now Marsh. But I, after I left their graduate program, I actually switched sides, if you like, and I, I then joined Hiscox. And, and that's obviously a part of my career where I did meet a lot of people. So a lot of people sort of remember me from that bit of my career. And that straddled two things. Firstly, you know, then retraining, if you like, as, a, as an underwriter, insurance underwriter. So that's my background. But then also I was given Hiscox the opportunity, which is really my 30s, was then that transition from being a senior technical person to being a, a manager, I suppose, or a, um, a sort of a leader in a commercial sense. And then in my uh, 40s, I was given a very uh, good opportunity. Hiscox bought an insurance company and I was asked to join that insurance company. And actually, I then ended up actually being the, the managing director of, of that insurance company. So that's then meant that I got all the experience of being regulated and you know having to lead an actual company a limited company and that that was fantastic but then in I, I suppose I was only in my early 40s then and I'd been at Hiscox for quite a long time and I was offered the opportunity to actually do an entrepreneurial startup flat startup madness in many ways but I, I joined a gentleman called Nigel Barton uh, to create a business called Oxygen and that had two parts to it. And my part, if you like, was setting up and managing what, what would now be called an MGA business. But we were one of the very first businesses to do that in the UK. 
And because of that, we were approached to be bought by quite a lot of businesses. And, and actually, we sold the Oxygen MGA, which is called OIM, to Gallagher's. So I kind of went around a big circle back to my original broking roots. But this time I was entering a broking business, but as an underwriter, so with an underwriting business. And that was very interesting how you try you know, to put a, a, a completely different function into a very big, you know, broking conglomerate, as it were. And then so obviously when you sell your business to, to another business, you have like an earn out period and a, a contractual period that you have to stay with with the business. And uh, so I, I kind of completed that. And actually, I, I just accepted then. Uh, so I was thinking a kind of non-exec might be the next phase of my career, if you if you want to think about it like that. But just as so I have I did accept one non-exec position with with Asta, the Lloyd's managing agency business. And then um, Sandy rang me to say uh, that he was retiring from the CII. And uh, I was one of the people that he'd suggested that the board approach uh, for the for, to replace him, which I have to say was a bit of a surprise, given that I'd always worked in the, you know, as a commercial person rather than as a kind of educationalist or a policy type person. But anyway, there you go. Here, here I am at the CII. So fifth career. Amazing. How did you find the changeover from the corporate side of things to the educational side of things? Well, it, 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 interestingly, in, in the end, when I got here, I, I realised why it wasn't actually such a big surprise, because although professional bodies obviously do have quite a wide remit, essentially they're not charities. So was a few of them for technical reasons are, but generally they're what's called a not-for-profit. So that actually doesn't mean no profit, by the way. It, you know, it actually means that you have the huge privilege that you're allowed to reinvest your profits in your business and in your sector that you're responsible for but in all other senses if you don't earn a living actually you're not going to have any profits to reinvest and you know you can you can go in you know you can stop functioning as a not-for-profit in exactly the same way as you can as a commercial business so as I said when I got here I it actually I realized it wasn't as different so I joined the CII on what you might call a modernization agenda. That's what the board wanted. Um, Huge credit to my predecessor. He'd taken over the CII at a very difficult phase in 2000 when, you know, it was in a pretty parlous financial state. And so he literally had to rebuild it. And, you know, he took it through the whole, you know, the launch of corporate charters, you know, all of RDR. He He was the CEO of the professional body during all of that. You know, the creation of the new financial planning profession out of RDR, you know, so huge, huge credit. And, and he did rebuild, you know, the financial position. But, you know, the world moves very fast. And if you've got out of date technology or you've got, you know, your learning methodologies have to keep moving forward, all of that sort of stuff. So we created a sort of five year plan, if you like. This is the fourth year of that five year plan. and uh, and And so, you know, we're well into uh, actually actioning rather than just coming up with the, the initial strategy. So we had a, a, a manifesto launch at the end of 2016, following a review with PwC. And that obviously identified a number of key areas that we would focus on. And that, that's essentially what we've been doing for the last four years. You're obviously now four and a bit years into your five-year plan. So how 
how closely have you followed it and um, how close are you to realising the objectives for the five-year period? Well, actually, funnily enough, in some respects, I mean, COVID isn't a good thing in any shape or form, but it's like every crisis, it's also an opportunity. So, I mean, basically what we what we committed to do, it was relatively simple. We said there were three things we were committing to do to ourselves as an organisation, and and we expressed that as being, you know, relevant, modern and diverse. That was because... You know, if, if you're going to if you're going to be the professional body for a sector and for society, you've obviously got to reflect that sector and society. And then the and then we said, probably more importantly, what are we actually going to do for the profession? And again, we said three things. So we said, you know, relevant learning. So not just learning, but relevant learning, engage membership. So not just growing our membership numbers, but more importantly, the level of engagement we have with our membership and insightful leadership because there's lots of bodies around there's lots of think tanks and there's the regulator there's government departments you know so there's no point in us just being another talking head for the sake of it obviously there are things that we have to pick on that are are likely to make a difference so as we said it's the insightful bit is, is is the important bit so so those were the three things and um I think, the, funnily enough, the modernisation programme, COVID has probably helped us because a chunk of that was the concept that, you know, the CII is not a building or a location. It's actually a bunch of people that do stuff. And also that we would be able, because we're an international organisation as well as a UK organisation, that we would be able to kind of work anytime, anywhere, I suppose, is the, is the right way to put it. And, uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress with that when we obviously we sold our heritage building and moved out about uh, three years ago uh, two yeah, just over two years ago. And that meant we had to operate in a very different way because we knew we wouldn't ever have a huge building like that again to be working with. And then uh, so so we were I would have said we were 70 percent confident that we could work anytime, anywhere. And then along came COVID and actually within, you know, a week, we had everybody working anytime, anywhere. So, you know, actually that that work had really stood us in good stead. You know, the, the, the two things that I would say we were probably a bit caught out by, not not deliberately because we were working on them, but just the timing, you know, st- from an exams perspective, this is this is qualification, not learning. But from an exams perspective, we were still very dependent on physical locations. So when you do your uh, multiple choice exams or you do your written exams, they still take place largely in a, a physical centre. So obviously, with the government closing all locations, you know, that was like, you know, so we did have to cancel our April exams, which obviously we wouldn't have wanted to do. But fortunately, you know, we've been able to sort of start, you know, start reopening uh, or the centres have started reopening. But we've also put in place remote invigilation. So, you know, for the future, we're very hopeful we'd never be in that position again. And the other thing is, obviously, if you're a membership organisation, a lot of the concept of membership is also around events, you know, physical. So physical CPD conferences, you know, all of that stuff. And although, we, again, we were working very hard on producing a kind of parallel digital ability, you know, that what we weren't, we definitely were not thinking that we would need to replace the whole of our physical event schedule with, with um, 
you know, with, with re- remote ways of doing things. But um, so, again, COVID is, was a real sort of pencil in our back to kind of get on with some of that stuff as well. So, so you know, horrible. But at the same time, you know, sometimes these things can be a catalyst for making you get on with stuff. So, I think you're absolutely right. I think the catalyst has been globally to push the world into the 21st century from a, a, a corporate perspective, I suppose. On a, a similar note, just really interesting, I am the events coordinator for Cambridge CII and I do their CPD events. And I've noticed, obviously, the huge change to webinars, but also quite a significant increase in uh, membership engagement, which I think is quite an interesting point. Well, I suppose, I mean, in many ways, it's completely logical, isn't it? That if you don't, you know, if you're busy and actually it fits into your day because you think, oh, oh there's, that, there's that, you know, uh, uh, you can choose, you know, at lunchtime or whatever you think, oh, that that's, uh, that event's happening. It's very, oh, that looks quite good, you know, good. Or, or even because you're, you know, most people these days, at least working from home, have some level of autonomy, not everybody, but a lot of people have some level of autonomy around how they can spend their time. So logging into something for half an hour or an hour where it's your choice of your time, you know, whereas if you've got to finish your day, go to the car, get in the car, it's raining, you know, you could go home or you could go to a sports centre or whatever, wherever it is that this thing's been, you know, it kind of makes people think twice about, you know, it's, so it's not that it's not the subject matter they're not interested in, it's the process. And I, I think there's quite a lot of logic to to that, you know, making it much more accessible for people. And I, I know the London Institute, for example, you know, they, they've been regularly getting, you know, although they put their lectures on, say, in the Lloyd's Library, which, you know, does have a lot of footfall. You know, I don't know what the average would be, but maybe 50 people, something like that. And certainly so far they've been getting, you know, several hundred people, you know, coming to their, their lectures. So... I think the other thing that the digital way of doing things allows is it allows sharing because, I mean, I've always known, for example, that lots of the institutes individually have got very good events going on, but it's been very hard to uh, share them. Whereas if somebody's doing a webinar, then, you know, actually that can be made accessible to everybody. So that I think that that is going to be of huge interest to people going forward as well. I think you're absolutely right. I think the um, collaboration opportunities have a direct impact on each individual institute's finances and, and therefore the, the CII as a, as, a broader, as a broader whole, being that you can increase engagement by sharing across institutes, but also decrease the finances by sharing across institutes. So I think it's, it's a really key thing that's starting to happen. And we've done that at Cambridge several times now over lockdown, which has been great. Just to touch on something else you said earlier in, in our chat, you're now four and a bit years into the five-year plan for the CII. What does the next five years look like? Yeah, well, I, I mean, if I said rather boringly more of the same, I mean, not more infrastructure change. I mean, the whole point of investing in the, you know, the, the work we've been doing on our, our own IT infrastructure, our own delivery ability for learning, stuff like that. You, you, oh, and obviously, you don't want to be doing that every every five minutes. But um, it's really then that what we didn't have before, if if you want to put it that way, is we didn't have much scalability. So every time we did something new, we we either had to employ more people, or else we had to stop doing you know something that we were doing. 
And, you know, you can imagine the space we cover because it's, although we're called the Chartered Insurance Institute, it's insurance in the old fashioned sense of the word. So we cover everything, you know, what is now general insurance? Yes, but we still cover, you know, pensions, protection, all of the stuff that's come out of the old life offices and, and them, trans, them transforming themselves. And now all the new areas of financial planning and wealth management. Yeah, we cover that whole space. And, you know, there's, there's no way that uh, you can have content both from a learning and qualification perspective and also from a membership perspective across that wide scope unless your own systems and processes and your way of going about things is actually very scalable. So I suppose two things we do know. One, we know that there are areas where we're underweight in terms of our attraction with, with the sector, if you like. So we know that protection is somewhere where we're we have historically been a bit light and we and we know that there are you know uh, areas you know around insurance I mean you could say reinsurance we you know we are a bit lighter than we are in the sort of general insurance space the whole area of employ employee employment benefits which is now one of the major areas where people get protection uh, products and and uh, you know sort of employment protection you know that's probably an area where we we are lighter than we should be and then new areas have come along, like healthcare is obviously now, you know, a big business, whereas historically that would have actually been something that was very specialist and quite small. You know, so that believe you me, there's no shortage of areas where, you know, we, we have some engagement, but we probably don't have as much engagement as as we would like to have. And the reason I say that is that if you think about we talk about uh, the life journey. So if you're, you know, there's one thing all of us as, as human beings share until we die, and that's that we're all on this life journey. And, you know, life is a risky business. You know, it's a wonderful thing, but it's a risky business. And human beings are not actually that good on their own, left to their own devices. They're not actually very good at thinking what's going to happen along the way. And that's what our sector is all about, really. We do know these things. We do know what's likely to happen to people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And we do know what's likely to happen if they get married or if they have children or, you know, if, or if they contract you know, a disease or if they get dementia. We do know what that looks like, but we probably don't do enough to take that theoretical knowledge that we've got and actually really turn that into products and services that put the you know the life journey of the consumer at the heart of of how we're trying to do what we do but it's a journey I mean that you know the whole of financial services hasn't been around for that long and you know pure you know marine insurance maybe for a bit longer life insurance maybe for a bit longer but almost everything else has developed certainly within the last hundred years so it's not surprising that there's a lot more for us still to be doing uh, that would really help people live well a less risk from a financial perspective, you know, a less risky life. And then obviously the new wealth management areas, you know, they're about helping people to build up financial resilience, not just rely on products when something goes wrong, but actually to try and plan themselves for how they could live a more financially resilient life. So, you know, so the value to consumers is huge if this sort of financial services journey actually works really well. And for some, you know, a few people, it does work okay at the moment. For, for a lot of people, it's very fragmented and, and it doesn't really hang together in a consistent way. 
I watched a YouTube video where you were interviewed about three weeks after you'd started in, in your current position. And one of the things you were talking about was bringing a holistic approach to the CII and engagement with the wider society and members, which is absolutely what you're talking about now. And, and I couldn't agree more. And just going back to what we were saying earlier, the segmentation of, of the world into corporate life, personal life, childhood, adulthood, etc., doesn't really exist in anywhere other than our mind. And I think when you look at it in a more holistic way, that is the life journey and accumulative effect of everything, it brings a much more person-centric approach, which, which I think is fabulous. On that note, you're talking about wanting to engage with niche areas within the industry and financial services as a whole. How? is my question. How do you take from where you are now to the sort of engagement that you see in the GI sector? Obviously, marketing effort, what are you looking at doing? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is you have to engage with those markets. I mean, I'll give you an example. So, you know, we've always had some involvement with the mortgage advice area through, we, we have something called, this is, we've always had actually, we've had for a long time, the Society of Mortgage Professionals. But in a way, it's been slightly secondary to the work that we've been doing with the personal finance area and the financial planning area. But of course, what we've realized is that actually that mortgage space is a, is a very important space in itself. If you think about people trying to you know, gain, a, gain a, a sort of a physical asset that is, is backing their, you know, behind their life as well. And most people do want to have their own property or their own you know, house uh, along the way. And that, funnily enough, because that's the area where, you know, mortgage protection is still largely backed up by protection products as well. You know, that's become an increasingly important area for people to realise that there are other ways of of mitigating and managing risk in their life as well, which actually, you know, they they may never have really thought about, like, I don't know, like life insurance or, you know, other things like that. So, you know, that would be an example of somewhere where, you know, we, we were there, but we, we hadn't really focused on it. And, you know, that there is uh, quite a bit of work going on there now. And protection is the same because I suppose that sector of the market was going through a lot of change itself for the last five or six years, probably. But now there are, again, you know, people who do want to be identified with specialising in that, you know, what used to be the old assurance products, you know, but and then it all became very unfashionable and nobody wanted to talk about them like that. But now people are back saying, you know, actually critical illness is really important. You know, uh, life insurance is really important. You know, uh, personal accident, you know, all of medical expenses, all of these areas which are more complicated and more long term, you know, they are actually vital because m- most people's level of financial resilience is pretty small. Some people may build up huge savings, but a lot of people actually need product help to address terrible situations that can can occur. So, you know, that um, and and there's a, you know, there's a real link there between, you know, the work we're doing with mortgage and the work we're doing with protection. And if you think about, you know, we're we're terribly tribal as a, as a, uh, sorry, I mustn't use that word. I'm told I should say communities, we're very community focused, tribal is the word, across, you know, this sector. So, you know, people have a tendency to say, oh, well, I don't do that. I'm not involved in that. But actually, it's a, it's, it is, you know, a continuum. So, yes, general insurance over here 
you know, you know, is looking at your, you know, your assets and your person and your wealth in from a, a protection perspective, you know, product perspective. And then the bit in the middle is kind of looking at your family and your your ability to, to kind of protect yourself and those around you. And then, you know, the personal finance area is then saying, right, so now that you've got that, you know, at least protected, how do you start building up some real assets, you know, some real actual financial wealth? So, in fact, the whole thing is very connected. And if you look at both individuals and businesses, they actually have a life journey, both of them. And they're, they're actually quite similar because businesses are all about making up and breaking up, aren't they, in the same, as you know, from your experience. And human beings are all about, you know, being on your own, then being in relationships, then maybe parting with relationships and then maybe being on your own again. You know, it's it's a very similar journey that consumers go on as well as, as uh, SMEs and, and, and businesses. Yeah, indeed, I totally agree. Some of the work I've been doing over the last week or so, which just highlights exactly what you're saying, is a lot of profiling of our market. And I've just been really surprised to see how many mergers of businesses there have been that bring together general insurance with wealth management, with mortgage broking, protection, etc. Because there's obviously such a, a client crossover and a need for the services to interrelate, which I think is, uh, I just think it's really interesting. Yeah, well, I think, you know, customers would bring it all together, but regulation will often force it all apart. So, but after a bit, if you if you you know if, you, if people are comfortable with the regulation, they get and they've got their head around why you know there's more stringent regulation maybe in one place and not quite such in in another, or the regulation the rules are slightly different. I mean, there's often there is often a reason for that. You know, certain things are much more expensive and more long term and more complicated than other things. So, but if if you can get your head around that, then you do come back to the fact that your customer for this could be your customer for that could be you know because it's the same customer isn't it so you know consumers do have a multifaceted need for well certainly for advice but then they do actually have quite quite a coherent need for, for products and services as well just touching on the holistic approach and the life journey that we've been talking about which very much fits what you're saying there's another aspect that I'd like to hear a bit more about, and that is the Ensuring Women's Futures initiative that you are founder of. So what's this all about? How did it come into being? Well, that's actually, I suppose, is a case in point, really, because one of the things I realise is rather wonderful about the CII is that we obviously have a royal charter. And I mean, in essence, a charter is just a sort of an old fashioned mechanism for creating incorporation. But a royal charter, you hold a royal charter in the interests of society, not in the interests of the sector, or in fact, not in the interests of your members either. So a professional body, although you join as a member, it's a society of members for the benefit of the public, not a membership organisation for the benefit of the members in a, in a true mutual sort of sense. And obviously what the charter says, you know, the main, the big umbrella is, you know, secure and justify the confidence of the public, because obviously with something like insurance, trust is is everything really. But in the objects then of the charter, it, it sort of tasks us as a body to in, ensure, I suppose, two things or to look, at, you know, to always consider two things. You know, if you look out into society, are there groups of people that for either 
exclusion or actually more importantly probably lack of relevance are they somehow being left out of the amazing protection and help our products and services can actually bring to people's lives and you know in order to do that what we do is is do research essentially and we sort of bumped into the gender agenda if you like in the sense that a number of us were just discussing areas where you know there did seem to be a lack of engagement with insurance and financial services more widely and we were just sharing experiences and and we started going oh because lots of us had similar experiences that our mothers or our grandmothers or our aunts or our sisters or whatever seemed to be getting themselves into these positions where you know they were you know severely financially sort of stressed in 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 some way and it was like because hmm. I'd not really thought there would be you know a sort of a, a big difference between men and women I, I I mean nobody's that good with money but I was just thinking you know I didn't realize there was such a so I asked Sandy because this conversation was happening just as I was transiting into the CII and I said is you know if, if we wanted to do some research on this is this the sort of thing that the CII does and he said, well, absolutely, because, you know, that's one of the things the charter sort of tasks us with doing. So I was very, very lucky that a group of people agreed to do this on a completely pro bono basis. So we as the CII provided the, the financial backing, if you like, and the secretariat. But there were five of us originally that kind of got together and said, let's, you know, let's look into this. And I was very lucky that Jane Portas, who was moving at the time from KPMG to PwC and is a you know is a is a very experienced she's a scientist by background but she's also done a lot of uh, investigative and and research work over the years so she if you like she knew how to do this you know properly and uh, what we did was plan to look at not I mean we called it ensuring women's futures because that's where we started from but in the end what we ended up doing was looking at the differences between men and women so it's not a it's not about judgment or saying this is right or that's wrong it's just it's a comparative and we plotted the life we essentially plotted the life journey and said what are the differences between a woman's life and a man's life and then what are the risks that a, a woman would face in her life and what are the differences between those risks between men and women and then what's the financial impact of, of that so in a funny way you know, Jane's brilliance in this was to apply what you might call a risk assessment to people's lives. And she came up with something, it's like a framework, uh, a risk assessment framework. And it's got, it it ended up identifying 12, what we call perils and pitfalls. And they, you know, they plot along a woman's life and, but they compare the data for men and women. And then the brilliant thing at the end of it was that what you realise is you can then see how the other 10 lead to the last two. So first of all, you know, the, the first 10 lead to what we call the pensions deficit, the women's pension deficit. And then, of course, the last one is what we call the longevity trap, because on the whole, women do still live longer than men, and they often live in worse health than men, and they therefore need care themselves at the end of their lives, having been carers to everybody else all the way through their life. And yet, if you look at the financial position that the average woman is in at, at that time when she needs the money, she's in a significantly worse position on average than a man. And that just didn't, that just doesn't add up. And, and if you look at it just purely from a societal perspective, 
half the population are women. So by definition, if women lack resilience, everybody lacks resilience. And more importantly, by 2050, it's estimated that a third, a third of the population will be over retirement age. So the position, financial position retired people are in is very important by then. And there's a million more, there's likely to be a million more women than men in that group. So if, you know, again, if women are in a financially less resilient position, that impacts everybody. So, and I just, I, you know, I suppose the kit, you know, the, the killer stat for, for me was that this is average and this includes all pension ability, you know, but the average woman's pension pot, not the pension itself, but the pension pot at the end, you know, when, when she would really need it is only a fifth of that of the average man. And this is average. It's not, not the worst case uh, situation. And the other one is the lifetime earnings. The lifetime earnings of a woman, on average, is only 64% better of a man. So it's, you know, it's a, there's a significant difference in, in financial resilience of, of, of between men and women. Now, I mean, the, the beauty of this framework is what we then said was, okay, so the first research was the perils and pitfalls, if you like. Great. So what do we do about it? That's when we came up with the life journey and the moments that matter. So what we then identified was what we call six moments that matter. And they could occur at different times in people, different people's lives, depending on their circumstances. They're linked to the life circumstance, but they are points where an intervention would make a difference. You know, so and they can be twofold, really. They can be things you don't know that if you then make a decision without knowing those things can actually make a, a really big difference or things that you do you do know but you don't understand the you don't understand the implications of them and so the six moments that matter is kind of designed to sort of say right you know if you're entering into the workforce you know what are the things that you know need to know what are the things you should be thinking about if you're entering into a relationship what are the things you need to know? What are the things you should be thinking about? You know, so it's that approach. And we, we sort of, you know, joked and said, you know, it's sort of six moments that will change the world, really. Can you point us in a direction of where uh, people listening can access some of this information? Yeah, so we have a micro site, which is just, you know, ensuring women's futures. And then you can, if you want to make a difference individually, so you want to actually yourself learn about this stuff and then go and communicate to other people you can become an IWF ambassador in your own right so you can sign up on the site it's really easy and that means you get a newsletter and and we keep you informed and you can all the stuff that's on the site is public information so you can download it you can use it you can use it on screen there's some video there's vimeos there's all the research reports are on there in a very nice form nicely designed form and in particular, we turned just the research then into a market task force with a manifesto to actually make things happen. So we're now past the research phase, if you like. The task force came out with quite a lot of recommendations. And we're actually now in train to say, right, how do we take those recommendations and actually turn them into reality? And in fact, we had a policy roundtable just last week, um, week before last. And that's with you know, ABR with so that's that's with the trade bodies, 
government bodies, the regulator and the third sector as to how do we take these recommendations and then land them with the people who've actually got the convening power uh, to make a difference. So that, that's what that's what we're doing at the moment. But if I could just give you an example, I mean, one of the biggest things about this is awareness raising. And at the end of last year, we had our manifesto, you know, manifesto launch with along with all the recommendations. But we did alongside it, we did what we called and we did an event called Talk to 10,000. And the idea was for each of the ambassadors just to talk to 10 other people about this. Of course, women, great, but it didn't have to be women. It could be anybody. And in the end, so we were a bit nervous, you know, about whether all thousand would do it. So would we get to our 10,000? Of course, the press were quite interested in this. And in the end, we we did, uh, it was 1.6 million. So I know, I know in social media land, that's, you know, it could have been a billion, I know, but 1.6 million people got, you know, talked with each other and to, to other people about things that they may or may not have had any knowledge of before. And we had an awful lot of feedback from, you know, uh, well, women in particular, but actually quite a lot of men saying, gosh, I had no idea that these things were so, you know, that they have such a build-up effect. And, you know, a lot of people quite actually quite angry about the fact they didn't know, you know, these things earlier in their life and, and that their life had been impacted by not knowing these things. So, you know, there's enormous amount of stuff to work with there. But the beauty of the framework is it can apply, you know, we could equally switch it around and call it ensuring men's futures or ensuring everyone's future because it's just a framework for looking at the risks in life and then working out what the what the best interventions are to make a difference you can do it you know you can do it on on other you know any other intersection as well because i mean BAME is an obvious one as well because anything that affects the average you know the likelihood is that any other intersection is actually going to be probably impacted even more than the norm if you like so disability or any of these other things but the ensuring futures framework is designed to give you a, you know, a framework to work with to then actually get to some conclusions to actually make, you know, make some things happen. That's absolutely incredible. I'll make sure I put the link to the initiative in the show notes to this podcast. So anybody listening, please do go and check it out and sign up. I think it's turning everything on its head, giving it a tangible financial implication rather than an emotive issue it's incredible well that's why i was so i was so privileged to work with so so you know a group of really rigorous people at the beginning because i mean i'm I, you know i'm i'm from as i say i'm from a commercial background i'm not from a policy or you know a sort of academic or a consulting background but the one thing that those all of those guys do is they go to the facts first whereas you know quite a lot of entrepreneurship is is about feel or about i mean it, you know, I'm not being disrespectful. I know there's a lot of research goes into business as well, but academic research is a bit different. And, you know, there is an awful lot of information out there. I mean, we we did not use, we deliberately only used independent data. So ONS, most of it's there within the ONS statistics. But what happens is nobody does the analysis on a gender basis or on a BAME basis or on a you know, they, that most people feel that the average is good enough. And sometimes it is. But if you want to be more rigorous, you've actually got to, you know, you've got to 
you've got to look underneath at what the you know the 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 stark realities of the underlying data look look at and of course once you start to look you then see how different things are which if you think about life is is completely logical isn't it i mean you know people with less you know with less opportunity in life you know this is why social mobility is so important because you know by definition people who are in a poorer environment generally are poorer in all ways you know not just that they start off with less money but that impacts all sorts of other things along the way and so if you don't think about those things you don't create pathways for people to actually progress you know progress from where they are to to somewhere better and that's why this sort of this idea that you have to look at everything on a uh, an average basis is, is can be very misleading the idea of looking at this from a cumulative effect is very powerful. Why something like this is so important, just to give you a, a tangible example. So, as you know, the government have uh, brought together the sort of public advice bodies that were sort of out there, and they've created something called the Money and Pension Service. And the Money and Pension Service is statutorily created now, and it has funding, has funding from the government. And it is there now to try to help the UK population you know, have a much more comfortable and knowledgeable relationship with money and particularly with long-term savings. Interestingly, there was not going to be a gender lens on that until we were able to show that if you just kept taking measures on an average basis and did not get to grips with the fact that women are very much less engaged with, you know, what and how and what their options are and that the financial services sector has not given enough thought to engaging with women as opposed to men. You know, we could have come, we could potentially come out with uh, lots of campaigns or activities or whatever that are supposed to bring the level of the public, you know, up. And yet all it would do is bring one element of the public up, uh, which is a good thing, but that's not kind of what it's really there to do it's supposed to bring you know everybody's uh, level of ability up so i have to say they the, the money and pension has been very positive and very good about that and then just another weird example is is disaggregated data i mean i think uh, there, there was a, a book written uh, a year or so ago called invisible women which was nothing to do with us but it was just talking about how women are invisible in statistics just generally because they're not referenced separately or they're or they're usually not engaged with them quite the same way as, as men are. And that is so true. There's, you know, as ONS fortunately have large, have worked hard in many ways, uh, even if it might have been inadvertent, but they do collect gender data. But if you look at lots of other uh, bodies, they don't. And for example, a horrible example is pension, pension drawdown. At the moment, the, they, the, 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 the regulatory authorities are not collecting disaggregated data. So although we know, we do know that a very large proportion of the new annuities that are being set up are kind of what are called single life annuities rather than joint annuities. We actually, I mean, we can guess that the majority of those are, in, are being taken out by men. But we don't actually know that because the data is, is not is not being disaggregated at the moment. So, you know, so there's a lot to do. And then, you know, gender neutral language, it's on I mean, it's been the law for a long time. But 
and I have to say Jonathan Davidson was very, very good about this, but we did go and point out that, you know, A, the regulatory handbook and B, actually the Companies Act, because that there used to be this legal norm of he, she, it is all he. But of course, that you know, that was supposed to be changed quite a long time ago by the by the new new legislation. But there's a lot of it still lurking around. And, and I, I found I'd still got some in my old, you know, my constitution, things like that. I've still got, you know, he, she, it thing going on. It is, it is something that's important because it creates a, an image in people's minds of the fact that, you know, a director is always a he or a customer is always a he. You know? And of course, that's, that's just not the case. It's an absolutely phenomenal amount of work that you're doing here. It's so interesting to hear about it. Your entire career actually sounds incredibly interesting because it's been, as you said, so multifaceted across the industry. What would you say has been the most fun or interesting part of your career? Like, I always laugh and say, you know, the most interesting bit is what, what next, right? Because it's, it's not until you, funny enough, it's when you look back, you think, oh, yeah, you know, that was. But actually, it's always the next thing is the most interesting because by definition, you haven't done that yet. But if you said fun, I, I, I mean, I think. Uh, in line with lots of people, of course, partially your memory makes you remember things you did when you were younger, you know, seem like, you know, in your mind, seem like more fun because they were probably more linear and less complicated. So I always point to the fact, you know, as an underwriter, I'm very proud of the fact that I uh, created a lot of new products for, if you like, white collar businesses, because if you go pre-Margaret Thatcher, you know, her time in the mid-80s, you know, the British economy was largely a manufacturing and public sector economy. There wasn't, a, there wasn't really a, I mean, there was a bit of a services sector, but not really. So almost all of our new economy was pretty much created, you know, after that, that sort of 80s time. And that did change the face of, you know, what people were working in and where they went, you know, things like media companies didn't really exist or things like technology companies didn't really exist or consultancies, you know, actually, I mean, nothing by that, but there, there weren't a lot of consultancies really. And a huge proportion of the population worked in the public sector. So by definition, it wasn't an, it wasn't an entrepreneurial kind of culture. So what that gave was, I suppose, my generation, it gave us an opportunity to be there right at the beginning of, of all of that stuff happening investment banking, the Americans buying up all of the, you know, the the big bang, as they called it, putting all of these different little factions together as, as holistic businesses. You know, that all happened during that period. But it, if you were in insurance, it did create an opportunity to create new products because these companies had never existed before. So, you know, that I do remember that as being a very exciting time. And it gave me personally an opportunity to kind of create new business which meant that you know of course if you create new business in any business people are going to want to promote you or, or promote your interests and that, that's what happened to me at his clock so that you know so I remember that as a very good you know fun time but having said that you know you know it, I suppose fun is the wrong word but it was fascinating going through the whole entrepreneurial experience with OIM because we pretty much set the whole thing up from scratch, funded it from scratch, created proof of concept, went through the whole funding experience of, you know, do you do that privately or do you do that, you know, from investors or how, how do you do that? And then we actually went through the whole business of splitting the shareholdings, selling 
OIF. So, and with and it, this all happened within about seven years, seven or eight years. So it was like a cradle to grave experience of, of an entrepreneurial business in a very concentrated period of time. And then the challenge of actually taking it into another business and having to integrate it and create a, a pathway forward for it. You know, so that, so that that seeing that holistic picture through that, that was very, that was very interesting and of course we created the trade body the MGAA in in that process which was also because I've never, never set up a trade body before so that was that was very interesting as well what would you say to Sean of 20 years ago if you could say anything to her now i mean i think most people would say the same thing you're you're not as confident when you're younger because you know there's this idea that you're that you're born you know, some people are born with confidence and some people are not. I don't actually personally believe that. I think some people have a met a sort of a personality that makes it seem like they're more confident than other people. But I think real confidence actually grows with experience. So almost by definition, you're going to be more confident when you're older than you know than when you're younger. So I would, you know, I'd definitely say to my younger self, you know, proceed and be bold, as they say. But I think the other thing is, just from a practical perspective, I'd give myself a good pick up the backside and say, do your MBA, Sean Fisher. Because if you're going to make that transition from being you know, a technical person into actually leading and managing a business, you should really make the effort to actually go and learn about doing that properly. Now, you know, no academic qualification is going to actually show you how to do anything. But what it does is it gives you a frame of reference so that you're not just guessing at what you're doing. And it also, it does showcase good practice so it's like 90% of the time this is a better idea than this not always but 90% of the time it is so why don't you try that <laughs> so it's I would definitely you know give myself a good smack around the head because I, I didn't I was very fortunate that I did an exec MBA about 10 years later and that was a fantastic experience but I, I would you know to be rigorous if you're going to make that transition you really should you know, should make the effort to go and, go and learn about it properly, I think. It is absolutely incredible to hear the things you've done and are doing and advice you've kind of got for everybody. I, I'm really grateful to have had you on here. I've just got one final question, and that is, what would your advice be now to the small provincial broker that is about to go through the journey that we're about to go through in terms of the hard market and changes that COVID has brought. What's your advice? I mean, it's probably, it probably is actually what the really good quality brokers have always done, which is it's not the product that matters, it's the customer that matters. So what is it you know that they don't know? And how do you turn the conversation around so that you start with the bits that you know and they don't and you get round to selling the product at the end of the day? Because, you know, if I know this is, sounds like motherhood and apple pie and it's very challenging. I know, you know, people don't like spending money, but unless broking can, you know, stays in the position of the client's trusted advisor, you know, that what is the place for it? You know, if somebody is paying to get, you know, or you know, if brokerage is going out of the transaction, shall we say, that is remunerating a broker for being the client's advisor. And then there is no difference between the client's outcome with a broker or without a broker. That is obviously going to undermine the long term benefit. 
but I know, I mean, I, you know, I, I love breaking when I did it. I've spent my life working with, particularly with, you know, smaller specialty brokers and MGAs, you know, a big part of broking and, and underwriting agency is smaller entrepreneurial businesses. People care passionately, but that is the most important thing. And we're giving the example on, you know, getting caught out by your client, not having the cover that they maybe thought they had. Some of them, you know, maybe stretching a point a bit, but a lot of them obviously didn't understand what they had and what they didn't have. You know, you've really got to focus on that and learn from that and, and make sure that in the conversations you're having with your clients that you're thinking about them and what they need to know, not just, you know, what you're ultimately going to renew in terms of their their product spend, at, at, you know, at the, end, at the end of the day. And I think in that sense, brokers are, you know, hugely valuable, but they have their own longevity in their own hands, really, in many ways. Because if you look at what happened on the financial advice side, obviously there, you know, the regulator forced to split between, you know, product sales, if you like, and commission driven product sales and fee based advice. Insurance brokers have still got, in many ways, have still got the enormous privilege that huge split has not been forced by regulation, albeit in the corporate space, obviously, a lot of that advice is fee driven. But if, if brokers want to keep the benefits of commission on small deals, which allows them still to be involved in small premium business, then there is a responsibility that goes along with that to actually ensure that the, the customer is still getting the benefit of you as their advisor, not simply the product salesman for the, for the insurance company. Fabulous. Sean. thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. It's been great to hear about your background and your advice. I think what you're doing with the initiative is phenomenal. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. If anybody has any questions, comments or queries on today's episode, please do drop me a line. I shall do my best to help. Uh, Look out for the links in the show notes. And as always, please do subscribe to uh, whatever platform you are consuming this podcast on. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.